I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Daniel Brady. Dan was a PhD student at Harvard University until about 2011. We actually overlapped for a little bit of time and, and knew each other when we went to school there. Dan did his PhD thesis on early brain development and how sensory systems in the brain actually develop. In particular, he looked at something called critical period plasticity. How and why is the brain super plastic early on in development during specific windows of time? And why do those windows close? And how does all of that work? In particular, he did some really interesting work looking at the visual and auditory systems in rodents. So if you are, you know, developing, your brain sort of pre-specifies certain chunks of your brain to focus mostly on vision or hearing or other sensory modalities. But if you're deprived of one of those modalities, say that you're born deaf or blind, certain areas of your cortex and other parts of the brain can get taken over, so to speak, by other sensory systems. So mice that are deprived of vision early in life have their visual cortex or what would have been their visual cortex taken over by things like the auditory cortex. And so we talked about some of those plasticity and early brain development mechanisms and how that worked. We got into phenomena like uh, language acquisition in humans and critical periods for learning language. We talked a little bit about synesthesia and why it is that sometimes in some people, different sensory systems like hearing and vision can become sort of fused together so that you hear colors that you see or vice versa and things like that. We talked about how that stuff influenced Dan as a parent. He actually has a, a young daughter of his own right now. And we talked a little bit about how his background in developmental neuroscience shaped how he interacts with and raises his daughter. And then we also talked about Arita AI, his new startup that focuses on using machine learning and AI techniques to solve problems for direct-to-consumer brands. So we talked about Dan's journey from being an experimental neuroscientist to a startup founder and data scientist, what his company actually does, which involves cleaning up data for direct-to-consumer brands. So a lot of companies out there have a lot of data, and data is a garbage in garbage out enterprise. So if your data is messy, you can't really get reliable insights from it. And so they use AI and machine learning techniques that come from Dan's technical background to clean up data. So they take in data from startups, they remove duplicate entries, they identify where the gaps in the data are, and they just clean it up generally speaking. So we talked about how all of that works, the kinds of problems they're solving for direct to consumer brands, how they're thinking about scaling and funding their startup, and how he used his technical background to develop into an entrepreneur. So if you're interested in sensory systems and early brain development and neuroplasticity, the first part of the talk will be really interesting for you. And we also transition nicely into the world of AI and machine learning startups and talk about what Dan's doing with all of that stuff today at Arita AI. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a product I use called Everyday Dose. They have created excellent coffee and matcha products with functional mushrooms and other supplements and less caffeine than traditional coffee or matcha products. I actually reached out to them because I've been using their product for about a year or so and listeners often ask me about my daily and weekly diet habits. They make a really good mushroom-based coffee alternative. It contains myconutrients with antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties as well as collagen protein to help support healthier skin, nails, hair, and joints and the amino acid L-theanine from tea leaves. Each cup has just about 39 milligrams of caffeine. That helps eliminate the caffeine crash that can come if you drink regular coffee, which has much higher caffeine levels. And they use a unique cold extraction process that results in lower acidity than normal coffee. And the caffeine microdose makes it suitable even for someone who doesn't normally drink coffee. This mushroom-based product is made using a double extraction from 100% mushroom fruiting bodies like lion's mane and chaga to maximize the extraction of micronutrients like beta-glucans, triterpenes, 
terpenes, and sterols. Other brands don't typically do this, making Everyday Dose one of the highest quality products of its kind. It's gluten, dairy, and nut-free. There's no added sugar. It's paleo and keto-friendly and made with kosher ingredients. There are no grains or fillers, and it is lab-tested to ensure quality. I really like the taste of Everyday Dose compared to black coffee and other mushroom coffees, and they have a mushroom matcha product loaded with functional mushrooms and collagen proteins, so if you like green tea matcha, you'll probably like that product too. If you're interested in a healthy coffee alternative, I highly recommend giving Everyday Dose a try. Check out the link in the episode description or visit everydaydose.com to learn more. If you go there, you can find special offers that they have for getting a free frother and free travel pack of on-the-go doses with your purchase. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld, pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters to get $50 off your Lumen device today. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Daniel Brady. You know, I just, it's so unnatural to me. Like I'm fine in person. I'm fine like giving talks and like yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff, but just like putting yourself out there, you know, with like a little bit of a daily feedback is very new to me. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I started it, I just decided like, okay, I'm going to do this. If I'm going to do it, like I'm going to do it. So I, I committed yep. to like one per week. So like when I first mm. started, you know, I had no audience or anything. And so, yeah. it, you know, I had to really try to get people, but actually not that hard. Like most mm. people like, I target mostly scientists who are yeah. really happy and enthusiastic to like, Oh, someone wants to hear about my work. Sure. Um, but you know, even <clears throat> you can really punch above your weight easily. Like if someone has a book or a show coming out, right. As long as they don't think you're like a psycho or something, right. Send them a reasonable email. Like they're probably yeah. going to say yes. Right. Yeah. And I also think too, like given your background, and just like just having a science background too, I think it makes it more approachable. You know, we're talking about potentially complicated topics, but for a general audience, and and I think that sort of expertise is just kind of really desired, especially with all this like generative AI hype and stuff like that. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, I went to like this talk yesterday where people were, they were basically like, you should put yourself forward. Like, as someone who does machine learning, who has a PhD in neuroscience, like people want to hear from you about this stuff. I'm like, but there's so many people just like talking about it all the time it's so annoying yeah. you know <laughs> but yeah no i mean but i completely agree with that like especially with your background and you know just the ability to articulate things um right there's so much noise out there that yeah. when people find signal i think they really they really attach themselves to it yeah yeah i think that's yeah. honestly like one of the biggest things about generative ai is 
is how much it, we're going to need to find signal again, basically in a bunch of noise. <laughs> yeah. And I just like, I also like, I just started like recording everything I reasonably could. So like mm. if someone advised me to give a talk like online, I just yeah. say like, cool, I'll give a talk, but I want, I want the recording. Okay. Yeah. And is put... that something that we can also have when, from this talk? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. You can take whatever you want from it. Okay. Awesome. Um, do you want to just tell everyone a little bit about your science background and what your training was? Sure. Yes. So, uh, well, my name is Daniel Brady. I usually go by DB um, or Dan. And uh, so like our venerated host, Nick, I have a background in neuroscience. So I used to be a neuroscientist for a while. Uh, I did my undergraduate at Berkeley, where I studied psychology and neurobiology. And then I got my PhD in neurobiology from Harvard. And after a brief stint of a postdoc at UCSF, um, I decided to move over into the data science and machine learning world in tech. And so I've been doing that now for about the last decade, mostly in the e-commerce space. Now I focus on direct-to-consumer companies. Um, but yeah, it's just all about bringing science to business. Hmm. Interesting. Um, what did you study for your thesis? Tell people about that, because it was one of my sort of favorite projects oh. that I saw when I was there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I I studied... So my lab, I worked in, in the Cal Hench's lab at Children's Hospital Boston, and the lab more generally studies how early life experience fundamentally shapes the way in which your brain processes information for the rest of your life. And my project, which was kind of a new direction for the lab, was what happens when you lose a sensory system early in life and what happens to the parts of the brain that were supposed to process that sensory system? Well, they start to get taken over by the other ones. So we studied in a mouse model, if mice did never had vision, right? They never used their eyes. Uh, then the visual part of their cortex would start to respond to sound and presumably touch, but we just studied sound. And we basically studied the molecular mechanisms and anatomically what was going on in order for what was supposed to be your visual cortex process sound and how that, like how they get shaped. That's roughly what we did. So is that why like, you know, you always hear things like um, people who are born deaf, their brain, yeah. you know, the, the visual parts of the brain respond to the auditory inputs and things like that. So, so that's true. Yes, that is true. It, it really matters upon like exactly when you lost that sensory system early in life. So, so you know, if you lose it when you're a teenager or as an adult, then you'll have basically that won't happen at all. But if you lo- lose it very early, then then you do a lot of your brain. What your brain basically does is it first has this kind of genetic mechanism to pattern roughly what it's supposed to be laid out as, and then and it happens in a hierarchical hierarchical way where different regions of your brains at different times, starting from the lowest level processing to frontal stuff, basically say, okay, I've been like set. I'm now ready for the environment to actually shape how I process information, right? So you have a large, our brains have a large part of it dedicated to vision, right? And it's a lot of unused space if you don't see, because if there's something's wrong with your eyes. So then there's a period of time where your brain goes, okay, I set all this stuff up for vision. Am I actually using the eyes? What are the statistics of the visual world that I'm experiencing? I'm going to sculpt all those connections in order to better process that information. And that's kind of what we studied. And what's really interesting is that this this has been linked to why people who lose sensory systems early in life tend to be better with the other ones, right? So Mm. someone who loses their vision can usually pick up sounds at lower frequencies or like at faster, you know, iterations of whatever. And that gives them a little bit of a kind of daredevilish sort of superpower. Um, and it's because they have a lot more of their brain area dedicated to processing that mm-hmm. sensory system. 
Yeah, I think it's pretty intuitive to people that, you know, the earlier something happens in development, whether it's something going wrong or some yeah. kind of experience that you have, <clears throat> it has a much larger impact than if the same thing happens later in life. But right. but why why is that exactly? Why is it that early development you're you have sort of more plasticity and more ability to be influenced by the environment and then eventually that kind of goes away? Yeah, so there's a, a couple well molecular anatomical reasons for that. But basically as I said, like there's this kind of genetic patterning where you have like all these neurons that are connected to each other in a certain way. And then there's this kind of molecular switch that occurs that allows your brain to be plastic, right? And then what happens is that it starts reorganizing itself. And then what occurs later is what's called myelination. And we can just think of it as kind of like laminating the neurons in place. And so they don't have, they physically don't have the ability to move and connect as much as they did when you're younger. And that kind of like that plus some other molecular mechanisms allow it to kind of sort of freeze in place. And then in order to then really have significant changes after that, you have to really engage in what are called your neuromodulatory systems. And so these are like the top-down processes, right? So for children, they can kind of actively, they can just kind of passively experience the world and their brain will start being shaped by that. But for me to like learn a language, like I have to study for a really, really long time. My daughter will just like pick up new words like every day, right? Without really trying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And like, so what what are some examples of like these critical periods? Um, I know that you guys studied the visual system. Yeah. But like, what, what are some examples that we can give people to to just help them think about this? Yeah. So one classic example, which most of the people in my former lab studied, uh, was about the problem called amblyopia. So this is when someone is born typically with a cataract over one or one of their eyes. Um, and so the actual eye itself is fully functional, but it's occluded. And so you have you have space in your visual cortex and your primary visual cortex that responds preferentially to one eye versus the other. And then that kind of experience is like, okay, this is a column of visual neurons that respond to the left eye. This is a column of visual neurons that respond to the right eye. When you have that occlusion early in life, because you're not getting input from one of those eyes, what happens is that the other eye starts to take over. And so if you do, if that happens early enough, and let's say you don't treat amblyopia until you're 10 years old or something like that, which is common, especially in the developing world, um, you can remove the cataract, but your central nervous system, your brain has already been like, I've already dedicated all that space to the mm -hmm. eye that was functioning at that time. And so you have a permanent cortical loss of vision, even though the eye itself was functional the whole time, it was just being covered. And this is also true of people who um, whose eyes are not perfectly aligned, who have like lazy eyes or something like that. So that's why you oftentimes see corrective measures early in life where they put a patch on the eyes to kind of like get them to orient correctly again. Otherwise, once again, you can lose vision in one of your eyes, even though they, it technically works just fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So things really do get locked in at some yeah. point in development. That's right. Yeah. And is that like, is that similar to why we learn, like, like you mentioned your, your daughter, uh, yeah. why like little kids seem to sort of effortlessly and passively pick up language. But if you try to learn one later, or you didn't fully learn one when you were young, you never like f get full, full fluency. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, there's there's lots of different reasons. The language is very complicated for for why fluency is not really that easily achievable in t when you try to learn language later in life. Some of it is basic as processing the sounds themselves. So there's phonemes are like the basic units that make up language, like a p sound, a b, all that kind of stuff. And so 
we actually have the ability to hear all the different phonemes possible when we're just born. But in any given language, not all of them are used. And so during the first year of life, what happens is that a baby's brain, as it's learning language and trying to figure out what the hell is going on, it starts to say like, hey, you know what? This R sound and this L sound don't really make a difference. So I'm going to like perceptually collapse that space. And then later in life, if you try and learn another language, so for example, R and L in say Japanese are not really distinguishable, then you have essentially what is an accent. Because to you, you can't hear the difference between river mm-hmm. and liver. Because as a baby, your brain was like, no, those are not different sounds in, you know, in the context of the meaning of what I learned it. And so that's that's an example of just from the basics of hearing it. There's also that for speaking it as well. I see. Yeah. So when someone has an accent, it's yeah. basically because in early life, there was no need in their native language to distinguish between two sounds like an R and an L. And that gets sort of locked in because there's right. no there's no information there for them in that context. And later in life, they try to learn that, but their brain is already sort of in, incapable, literally, of distinguishing those sounds. That's correct. And and what's actually really interesting about this, and, and Patricia Kuhl's one of the main researchers who studies this, is that like that collapsing, which, you know, at first glance sounds like something that it's like, why would you want to do that? It actually helps you learn those languages faster, right? Because if your little baby brain is hearing river, and then I pronounce it river and then liver, but I mean the exact same thing, and it's going to be very confusing because you're going to hear all the slight variations when the adults speak, and you're going to hear all these differences in the way, but you're just supposed to say like, oh, this is actually the same word, right? And so you're going to collapse. So it's actually easier for you to learn a language if you start figuring out which phonemes don't really matter. In a sense, and we mm-hmm. have plenty of ones ourselves as English speakers that we don't use. You know, like in India, there's a lot of what are called retroflect- retroflexive phonemes. So, if you say "duh" and then if you say "duh," right, and that actually sounds so it's like an Indian accent, but it's actually really hard for us to hear. So, if I say "dairy" or "dairy," that probably sounds very similar to people who don't speak one of the languages in in, in India. But that is a difference that they have, and so lots and lots of different accents are because of this kind of perceptual collapse of different bonings. Interesting. What if someone um, what if someone grows up bilingual and they, le- they learn two languages from the start, maybe one parent speaks one and, and the other one speaks a second one and they hear both, they become fluent in both. Yeah. Does something happen developmentally where they can then pick up languages as an adult even faster? Yeah, that's that's it's a very interesting concept, and it's it's something that is like kind of loosely studied. There is an idea that that might be the case. So what definitely can happen is that if you have languages, especially if they're very different languages, or one of them's like a tonal language, like Mandarin or something like that, you still have a lot more of the space available, right? So if if you speak something like Russian, which has uses a lot of different types of phonemes, and then you speak a tonal language like Mandarin or something like that, you kind of have a lot of space to hear a lot of different sounds. That like if you speak, say like Hawaiian or something else where they have actually a very few subset of the actual phonemes, it would be very, very difficult for you to pick it up because that stuff is all gone. Um, and it's probably, it's almost certainly the case that like knowing more languages makes it easier to learn languages also just because you've, you've seen, you know, what are the tips and tricks essentially of learning different languages and like how to get by when you do that. So it's definitely very important to kind of learn languages. One of the major things that, you know, for people in our, our in that space who study this sort of stuff is like, we're all very strongly believe in early childhood education, right? And then we also have this kind of like weird double-edged sword where it's like early life experience is super important, but then it's also like we're also super resilient, right? Babies are really resilient. Children are really resilient. 
And, you know, the key is just to like, make sure that they have a good, happy home, have good educational experiences and stuff like that when they're, when they're young, but they can really, they're very resilient, especially on the different sorts of things that they can experience as long as you do it early enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I think about here too, is, you know, when you talk about like an animal, a mouse or a human, maybe they're born blind or something, that visual part of the brain gets taken over by some of the other sensory systems. So they're dedicating more real estate to listening because they rely on that more say. Um, What about something like synesthesia? Does that tie into this at all? Where like some of these sensory systems kind of get crosstalk and people, you know, hear things that they feel physically and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's one of the more interesting concepts of what our work was. So, so I worked with this other graduate student named Liam Min. So I did a lot of what's called the systems neuroscience. So I was actually recording from neurons and seeing how they process information. And she took a more of anatomical approach. So one of the basic questions that we wanted to ask was, so how does this part of the visual cortex become multisensory? Are there connections there initially, or are there connections? Are is it because like the auditory cortex is close to the visual cortex that it kind of gets invaded by its neighbors? And what was very interesting from our findings is that we actually found, Leah found like an, an, a connection directly from auditory thalamus, which is like a brainstem, to the visual cortex that is just there weekly, but it's there and it exists. And that normal visual experience prunes that, right? And so it's what's really interesting about this concept is that it suggests that babies' brains are actually multimodal to begin with, and that there's a separation of your of your senses as you experience them in the real world. And if you don't experience the sensory system, then because they're multi-sensory to begin with, then the other senses sort of take over. This is really relevant in the concept of synesthesia, which is basically the fusing of different senses. So there's thought to be basically two types of synesthesia, a bottom-up mechanism and a top-down mechanism. So a bottom-up mechanism is very low-level processing, right? Like, and it's an example is like, I see letters that are associated with different colors that's called grapheme synesthesia and so in that context what we think is going on there is that like there is you know direct connections between say an auditory part of your brain and your visual part of your brain right and what our work you know basically suggested was like this is there from the beginning and that for a lot of people from normal experience these things are kind of pruned and shaped but then for some people, they get stuck and they have these various forms of synesthesia. There's another type of synesthesia, which is a top-down one, which is kind of more like, you know, this sound gives me the sensation of red. It makes me think of red. It's like a re- mm-hmm. red-colored glasses as opposed to like directly seeing red. And that is kind of like a longer longer tr- form synesthesia, which is basically something that like goes all the way up to like the frontal part of your brain and then goes back down. And so that's also something that's also really interesting too. And the whole reason why this connectivity and activity dependent refinement is super interesting is because we studied it in ter- we studied it in terms of very low level processing of sensory systems. But it's thought that like these same sort of critical periods are important. We talked about language, but it also can be important for social development. And that if you have you know this imbalance of the activity in your brain or the connectivity in your brain, that could lead to what we think of as neurodivergence or, or neurodevelopmental diseases such as autism or schizophrenia and stuff like that. And so those are issues typically with connectivity in higher regions, at, at least the symptoms that we care about, you know, and want to treat or to help, you know, adjust our society to deal with those, pe- deal with those people and make them have a better life. Um, but the basic idea of what they have happens all over your brain. So 
you know, when we think about like early development, the brain is super plastic, you know, babies are learning in ways, their brains can change in ways that the adult brain can't. And there's this notion of critical periods in different systems at different times where you've kind of got this window of plasticity and then it shuts off and change can still happen to some extent after that, but not like it could right. before. Are there any ways to sort of reopen or reinvigorate that plasticity either with drugs or by yeah. behavior? Yeah, that's, I mean, this is like the million dollar question, right? And so we can manipulate them in certain mouse models with usually what we do is administer different types of drugs that kind of, kind of, so a lot of, a lot of the more technical details of, of what our lab worked on was that basically there's kind of this imbalance of excitation of excitatory neurons and inhibitory neurons in your brain. And that's kind of what triggers, triggers this, these critical periods to begin. Right. And so if you can manipulate that balance and you can kind of reopen plasticity in sort of different types of ways. And, and, you know, uh, a, a good friend of mine whose lab I've written a bunch of code for named uh, here from me, Marisha, uh, Marisha at Mount Sinai, his lab really studies about the closure of critical periods and kind of opening that, and then also studying it in terms of social behaviors. But right now you can essentially have mouse models that are plastic for their whole life. So we talked about a little bit about uh, myelination and stuff like that. So some genes that are really important in myelination, if you get rid of them in a mouse, the mouse is able to be plastic for its entire life, which is very interesting. And there's also different ways that you can like administer drugs. Usually at the time when I was doing it, you'd literally have like little mini pumps that you would attach to their head and they would, their brain would be like infused with different types of drugs that affected those sorts of systems. And that would get it. In terms of actual, just like behavior and stuff like that, Right now, we know that attention and these neuromodulatory systems like your cholinergic system, right, they kind of work from these more frontal or basal areas that project back to the rest of your brain. Those usually engage like attention, right? So when we attend to something and we we work really hard at learning language, it kind of stimulates plasticity in that way. And there's ideas that like if you stimulated those parts of the brain while you were learning or if you use drugs that kind of enhance those sorts of systems that you should do this. Um, and so that that's kind of what a lot of the targeting is. I think a lot of work is right now working on on how can we make it so that this isn't something that's super invasive, right? Because a lot of the stuff right mm -hmm. now is like you need your brain surgery mm -hmm. <laughs> in order to like stimulate these things or in order to wash sort of chemicals. But is there, you know, like a pill that you could take or is there some sort of training regimen or something else that like some sort of stimulation that you can do on the surface of your head that kind of encourages that sort of adult plasticity that we see, but makes it stronger and mm -hmm. longer lasting. And when you're studying the opening and the closing of these critical periods in the brain and you use drugs to do that, what, what kind of drugs are they typically that, that have that effect? What part, what, what receptors and what effects are yeah. they having at the molecular level? Yeah. So, you know, what we study in terms of, of what triggers critical periods, it's usually, as I said, is this balance of excitation and inhibition. So a lot of the drugs that are important for that are, are some of the benzodiazepines. So things like Valium and stuff like that. And so one of the fundamental findings that my PhD advisor and his wife who's also a neuroscientist found was that like, you know, benzodiazepines or Valium can trigger early onsets of sensitive or critical periods, right? And so obviously the sorts of drugs that pregnant women should take is very, very important, but he basically showed that like, you know, this is really something that you don't want to take when you're pregnant, because what's going to happen is that the whole thing of you're setting this window of plasticity up to, for the real environment to then shape what it's like. Well, if you do that 
in utero when it should have been when you're born and seen, right? You might have like these detrimental effects to the way in which you process all sorts of things. So that's mm-hmm. one of them. And and then on the other end, there's the cholinergic, as I mentioned, I keep saying cholinergic modulation. There are drugs that affect those sorts of things. I mean, the most famous of them is nicotine, right? So there are nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, and those are very important in the sort of process as well. Uh, I do not condone taking nicotine gum or smoking, but my smoker, ex-smoker friends always love that and always tell other friends like, oh, I just need to smoke more when I'm learning and that somehow will do that. I do not recommend that sort of stuff. I think there's a lot of downsides to doing that, but it is those sorts of drugs are really important Mm -hmm. um, also in learning. So these critical periods are in large part governed by this balance of excitation and inhibition. And depending on where that balance is set, you're either in this kind of critical period where plasticity is high and then when yeah. that excitation inhibition balance changes, that plasticity goes away or at least goes down. And so th- yeah. is that why things like benzodiazepines have an effect here because they are affecting inhibition directly? That's correct. That's exactly what they're doing. And so that's kind of what tips that balance for them to start. And then, as I said, then then what also affects how they close in a normal developing brain is really this myelination. So you have you have these neurons that are have these axons and they're connecting all to each other. And then you have what are called oligodendrocytes, which are basically, as I said, they're kind of like the rubber that like insulates the wires of the brain. And so they also develop over time too. And that is a whole different sort of process, right? And when they kind of myelinate along the, 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 along the axons, that can also limit the plasticity, right? So if you have like literally all this rubber on top of like most of the axon, like it's not going to be able to be like, oh, let me go over there. It's going to be like mm-hmm. kind of stuck, right? And so that is also a really, really important process. And so some of the first molecular mechanisms that were discovered to basically keep plasticity open were actually on that process of like myelination in the brain. Yeah. And um, you have kids, right? I, I do. I have a daughter who's 19 months old. And so, you know, based on the work that you've done and what you studied yeah. in neuroscience, all of this early development stuff, did that influence yeah. at all, like how, how you watch your daughter develop or how you think about like what to expose her to in terms of experiences? Absolutely. And I, I think it, and it's, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting world because I'm also then now diving into reading studies about, you know, from economists and stuff like that, large scale studies on babies and things like that. And knowing knowing what I know now, like knowing from like a basic neuroscience perspective, it's kind of fun. You know, we definitely are very keen on exposing to her to as many different types of people, as many different types of interactions, different languages as possible, and really just kind of being very, very engaged with her as opposed to like having her sit and watch TV all the time or, you know, all this kind of stuff, because those things are really, really critical. But then at the same time, um, because of my background, I also don't flip out on a lot of the stuff that a lot of parents, you know, tend to worry about because there's a lot of stuff that you can't really control or that kind of even out over time. Right. So like doing something, you know, all the sort of developmental steps that people think about does your, son or daughter recognize themselves in the mirror when do they start speaking their first words all that kind of stuff there's so much variability and when you study this sort of stuff from a very basic perspective you don't worry that like you know your daughter's two weeks behind on taking the first steps but then it's really good at rolling around and really bad at you know like all that kind of stuff you're just like oh they're fine you know you have a much wider window of like when you actually start worrying about those sorts of things Mm -hmm. is there anything that you don't do or that you you don't expose her to that maybe a lot of people naturally do as parents Hmm, that's a great question. You know, I think, I mean, we certainly, 
We certainly don't expose her to any sort of drugs or passive things like that, right? So like both my wife and I don't smoke, so she doesn't grow up in a smoking household. Like there's some, there's a lot of things like that, like basically a lot of chemical sorts of insults that we kind of take care of. Things like, you know, what's when I was in grad school, what a lot of people wanted to also study were like, how do hormones influence plasticity and stuff like that? So like, are, is your, are your children being passively, you know, exposed to hormones in milk or in water and all those sorts of things or heavy metals like those are the sorts of things that we're trying to be a little bit more careful on like those because we both have biology backgrounds on like those sorts of chemical things um and then and and yeah those, those are probably the main the main ones that we kind of like actually spend time really really kind of considering yeah mm-hmm. and um so you're in new york city now i am yes i'm in brooklyn and uh oh, okay i was there a few weeks ago um yeah. What, uh, so how'd you get into what you're doing now? How did you make that transition from being a neuroscientist to what you're doing now? And and what exactly are you doing? Yeah. So we can talk a little bit about my journey into what I'm doing, because it's kind of a little bit of a winding road. So I graduated, I defended my thesis in 2011, but left Harvard in 2012. As I said, I did a little bit of postdoc. And um, it was at the time when, when data science was a thing, but not super common, right? So some of the big companies like Google and Facebook had data scientists and they're basically what they were doing is just scooping up people like me at the time, right? There wasn't a ton of like master's degrees in data science or really knew what it was. It was like, what we're going to do is we're going to like take a bunch of PhDs who are sick and tired of being in academia. And we're just going to like let them loose on things that have statistics in the company. <laughs> and like, let's see, let's see what they can do. Yeah. Um. So I kind of fell into to tech. I knew that it was like, I, I, knew, I did a lot of programming and sort of computational work, both in my PhD and my postdoc. So I had that background, you know, typically when, uh, like from earlier generations of scientists, when you decided that you didn't want to be an academic anymore, the first thing that you did, especially if you went to Harvard is you became like a McKinsey consultant, right? Mm-hmm. And that still is like oftentimes the case, but because of data science and because of machine learning there's like this option especially if you knew how to program at the time that you could also just kind of go into tech so that's what i did and i fell into working in startups because i had some friends who are working at startups and i was kind of doing some lab work writing some code for hirofumi at mount sinai and this one lab this one company was just getting started and this was around 2013 2014 and that was what I call like the same day delivery wars. There's, we can go into what that was, but like basically there's a bunch of companies that were all trying to deliver packages, last mile delivery all at the same time. So DoorDash, Postmates, all those sorts of things, they actually all started at that time. And, and they had a company along that, that was in that sort of space. And I didn't know anything about that world. So I would just go out there and hang out and write code with them. And they asked me to do a project for them. And they had all this customer data of like routing different packages and all this kind of stuff like that. And I made like, I don't even remember what it was, but like a dead simple little probabilistic model of like when they should have more careers or less careers on. And they were like, oh, this is really, really useful. And I was like, oh yeah, that took me like an hour. And it was really <laughs> rough. I didn't like really try very hard. And they're like, but this is really useful. And so when they actually raised uh, a round, I was their first employee. Oh, wow. And so, and what was really fun about being in that world was that like, I could use all these skills that I had as a scientist, which at the end of the day was, was being able to make models of the world, be able to think probabilistically, scientifically, mathematically, but apply it into this business, 
into the business context. In this case, in terms of serving people different goods as we deliver stuff, so it was a lot of logistics, um, and that kind of gave me the bug. And the, the fun thing about working in the tech world is that it moves super quickly. So you know, within a few weeks of my arrival, because of some of the work I did, our pricing model changed. We grew a lot, all this kind of stuff. I don't want to be responsible for the growth by myself. There was lots of other people who were helped it with. And then you know, a year from that, we were completely out of business. You know, and it was just like so fun compared to. And I really liked doing my academic work, but you know, in that context, it was like what fundamentally became my thesis. I discovered it, you know, midway through my third year. And mm-hmm. then it was like another three years proving that that was true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in like in tech, it was like, oh, that's a good idea. Like we're going to release that to a thousand people tomorrow. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then you see everyone react to that and people are like, this is the best thing ever, or I hate this. And, you're, and it's kind of addictive. Yeah. And so yeah. we kind of became addicted to that sort of thing. And so I've been in tech ever since. And I worked for another another startup after that one collapsed. And then what I had been doing fairly recently was uh, another data scientist and I started a consulting agency where we helped young companies, once again, mostly in e-commerce and direct-to-consumer brands, help become data-driven, right? So that's that's something that is kind of a word that a lot of people use. And there's a lot of well-meaning people who are very good at marketing, very good at, at designing products, and they collect all this information, right? Because we have all these systems on the internet to collect information, and they really want to make good data-driven decisions. Are my Facebook ads working, right? Is this product worth investing in? Are these customers valuable? Are they not valuable? All these sorts of stuff. Like how much time are we spending serving people? And there's a lot of mathematical questions that you can answer that and look at it scientifically, and people really don't know where to get started. And so we started a company that helped brands do this, helped them hire hire people, all this kind of stuff, did like all sorts of things, dynamic pricing, all sorts of different projects. But our goal was if we did something over and over again, we would convert to a C-Corp and make that as a standalone product. Mm -hmm. Basically, like what do we keep running into that Mm -hmm. we can productize and then sell that on its own? And so we've, we've had this, you know, we literally, we came out of our like kind of stealth mode at the end of the year, we launched our self-serve app literally like a week and a half ago. Mm -hmm. So we just kind of like, we're here, right? We've had a couple a couple of customers and pilot customers before that, but like we have now arrived. Mm-hmm. And the fundamental thing that we do is that we clean up and unify customer data, right? So the cheeky way to say it is that I say that we're like the garbage men of data, the sanitation engineers. So once again, companies collect an enormous amount of information. They kind of collect information on how you're interacting with their website. They're collecting information on how you're interacting with their customer service representatives how you're paying for the goods, all this sort of stuff. And what they're really trying to understand is like, did you like what they had? Are you coming back? How can they make their whole experience and a whole product better? But they use lots and lots of different systems to do this. They generate lots of data and there's no real way for them to connect it all together. And that problem of finding out who you are as a customer across all these different systems that have slightly different perspective of you is actually one of the hardest problems in computer science. Mm. The more general terminology for this is called entity resolution. It was actually started um, by the Department of Labor and the Census Bureau, because this was a huge problem when taking the census. You have all these census takers out there, they're collecting information, they're like, hey, I talked to Nick, and it's like, well, I talked to Nicholas, and it's like, 
their addresses are the same. Maybe there's two guys both named Nick that live there or not, right? Like that's a yeah, hard problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's something that through our entire life experience, we can get very good at. But to teach a program how to differentiate, you know, Dan, Daniel, Dan Brady, right? Dan Brody, is that misspelled Brady? All that kind of stuff is really, really tough. And so, mm. so you need a lot of math and a lot of data science and machine learning and engineering in order to kind of solve those problems. And to be frank, it's something that is usually well beyond the capability of even the largest companies that are out there. And so we thought it makes sense as a standalone product. Like you send us your data, we'll do all the hard math and machine learning to clean up and to connect all that data together to be like, hey, this is Nick, this is Daniel. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we give that back to you. And then for the companies that we use for, they have a lot of different use cases for this. One of the most basic things is like, how many customers do they have? Because one of the fundamental double-edged swords of the internet is identity. Mm -hmm. Who are you? You can present yourself as many different ways. Obviously, there's huge implications politically. We know everything that happened with Facebook and the elections and all that kind of stuff, right? And those are very well-rounded talked about ones but there's also ones like well you know this young brand is like 15 percent off for your first customer if it's your first purchase and it's like mm -hmm. well i'm going to just make a bunch of fake, fake accounts, accounts and pretend yeah. <laughs> pretend to be uh it's the first customer all the time and most companies don't care about the 15 percent, but what they really care is did they just get 10 new customers or one person that bought 10 times mm -hmm. right that makes them think of very very different ways in which they're thinking about the traction of their product, of of um, how, to how much it it's and, how yeah. to market it, everything, how to talk about it, what's working, and then also just kind of like, is this something that people come back to, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of those basic ways in which they look at it is wrong if that underlying customer data is wrong in and it of itself. And so we're like, don't worry about that. We'll fix all of it up and give it back to you. And so that's what we're laser focused on. I see. So. Like I actually work for my day job at an e-commerce company, and so I can, I can relate to this, um, and I can <laughs> yeah. I can assure everyone that all of this is a big problem. Um, but it's you know if you think about it, right? If you're hearing this, you are listening to a premium episode of Mind and Matter. The first part of premium episodes are freely available to all listeners, and the full episode is available to premium subscribers at mindandmatter.substack.com. Premium episodes feature conversations with startup founders, executives, and other professionals at science-related companies. They involve discussion of not only the science and technology underpinning their businesses, but also other topics such as business operations and strategy, startup funding, and the practical applications around how they're using science and technology to create products or services to solve customer problems. Premium subscriptions help sustain the podcast and increase the quantity and quality of the content that I produce. However, I do not want anyone to miss out on learning from any of my guests just because they can't afford a paid subscription. If you're interested in hearing full premium episodes but can't afford a paid subscription, simply sign up for my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com, send me an email, and I will give you a free premium membership. As always, I thank you for your support. Support. No matter how you engage with Minded Matter, the simplest and most effective way to provide support is to share your favorite episodes with family and friends.
This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can make Mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. 